In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. My name is Matt. I'm a pastor at City Reformed. We have an opportunity to dismiss our children for Children's Church. We are working through a book of the Bible, the Gospel of Matthew, the first of four Gospels in the Bible. Um, we are uh, partway through the opening section. We're going to move through Christmas. And in this opening section, uh, Mar- uh, Matthew is introducing us to Jesus. The text we're looking at today shows a, a transition in the passage. And one of the ways to, to see what Matthew's doing throughout this introduction is to notice some of the key words that he uses. Um, uh, One of the key words used throughout the the Gospel of Matthew is the word fulfill. We see it referenced in the passage today in verse 14. When Matthew speaks of things being fulfilled, he talks about how Jesus is fulfilling the expectations that were laid out beforehand. Uh, So to speak, uh, we might say that Matthew is tracing a thread in the Bible backwards in showing how Jesus relates to what came before him. The beginning, the first four chapters of the Gospel of Matthew are are full of many references to fulfillment. And there'll be some as we go forward, but they start to drop off after these opening chapters. In this opening chapter, a new word is used, used, though, that will become predominant through the rest of the book, and that word is kingdom. Uh, The word kingdom will occur uh, 50 times in the Gospel of Matthew as we are introduced to Jesus as we see his ministry and as we hear him teaching. Here we go. Okay. All right. Well, um, kingdom. (laughs) I'll read the text and then we'll talk about it together. Matthew 4, 12 to 25. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he, that is Jesus, withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region, shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the water with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and, the, with their, and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. This is the word of the Lord. Well, you you may have heard there not only the the fulfillment reference as Matthew again looks backwards, but um, also the uh, new emphasis in the language of kingdom. In verse 17, 
Jesus is described as beginning to preach, saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You may remember that's the same message that John the Baptist brought. And so the summary of the, of the ministry, the preaching ministry of Jesus is, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And again, in verse 23, Jesus goes throughout Galilee, and Matthew describes him as proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. What's the significance of Jesus' teaching on the kingdom? Well, uh, we have a little bit of a disadvantage here, unlike most people in history, and that is we don't live in a kingdom. Uh, as, as Americans live in a republic. Um, similar in many ways, but somewhat different. I was racking my brain this week to think of a good kingdom analogy. Some of the closest kingdoms live across the sea uh, from us. But I know many people are familiar with probably the most famous kingdom these days, the kingdom of Arendelle. Um, it is, uh, unfortunately, a mythical kingdom created by Disney's animated universe, a very frozen place where uh, ice princesses live and all sorts of magical things happen. It's a little bit to tra- hard to track down accurate information about the kingdom of Arendelle, but we're told, or at least Wikipedia tells us, that it's based somewhat loosely on an actual place in southern Norway. Um, the kingdom of Arendelle is a place that you can find on the map if you go to southern Norway and look for a small city. What we learn when we think about kingdoms is that kingdoms are places that you can go to. They are people that live together. They have laws and culture. But most importantly, kingdoms have a king, or perhaps in this case, a princess. All of those things are true as we think about the kingdom of God, but sometimes in unexpected or surprising ways. When Jesus spoke about a kingdom to the people in his first century audience, they had many images readily available. Uh, The people that were listening to Jesus uh, would have quickly thought when they heard language of kingdom of their own kingdom of Israel. Throughout the Old Testament, God had uh, called his people to live in a particular area. Uh, The kingdom of Israel had borders. The Bible gives great detail in the description of those borders. They had a, a king given by God. First a series of judges, but later a king. And it was clear in some form that was the plan from the beginning. The kingdoms had laws and cultures that had ways of doing things, and there were people who lived in the kingdom. In the first century, Jesus was speaking to a group of people highly dissatisfied with their kingdom status. The kingdom of Israel, though it remained an actual place, had people and culture within it, was under the oppressive rule of the Romans. And so when Jesus emerged on the scene uh, claiming to be the Christ And talking about a kingdom, people were prone to misunderstand what he was saying. What we see in the passage today is that Jesus will challenge their ideas of kingdom. And he will call them to respond in a a full-bodied way to his rule as king. There are two lessons I think we can take from the concept of kingdom. Because kingdom means and, and looks to places and people and cultures and laws... When we have a a strong understanding of kingdom in the Christian life, it allows our our Christian life to be more full-bodied. There's a a tendency among Christians to collapse the Christian life into merely a relationship with God. Sometimes it's common for our people to say, in my spiritual life, it's just me and Jesus. 
Well, that doesn't float if you have a concept of kingdom. No kingdom is just you and the king. Kingdom means entering to something bigger. It means responding to, to laws and commands outside yourself. It means being part of a people and having a concern for a place. On the other hand, uh, something that we can sometimes miss as people who live in a republic is that the concept of kingdom is so tightly tied to the king that you should never and can never really have a kingdom without a king. I think that speaks to an opposite problem in our Christian spirituality. Sometimes the good things Christians are called to do can begin to emerge with such importance that we lose sight of King Jesus in the middle of all that we're doing. When we look at the passage today, I'd like to make five observations. We'll just walk through five things in the text. But in the background will be these two questions. How does kingdom challenge us to have a broader view of the Christian life? And secondly, how does kingdom warn us that we must always be focused on the king in everything we do? To have the kingdom without the king is to lose everything. We'll look at those two things as we move uh, through five points in the text. Uh, The first thing we see as we uh, encounter uh, uh, Matthew's uh, teaching on Jesus in his ministry is that Jesus challenges their conventional thinking of his peer group, of his audience, that the kingdom of heaven is not going to be a place on the map, at least not yet. As we said before, the the people that Jesus was uh, speaking to would have thought first and foremost of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, In fact, uh, in the uh, book of Acts chapter 1, after Jesus has been raised from the dead and he's speaking to his disciples, they ask him a question and they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel, showing that even after his resurrection, Jesus' followers were deeply concerned about whether Israel, the the Jewish nation surrounding Jerusalem, would have independence from Rome. And Jesus says, that's not really the plan. He tells them clearly at that time that his plan is that they would not remain in a fixed area, but they would go outward from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Well, that same thread is found here in the beginning of Matthew. The thread that will move throughout the gospel is found here as Jesus relocates to a new place for ministry. We're told in verse 12 that Jesus withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and he lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali. Uh, The significance of that is that Jesus is moving further from Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the epicenter of the kingdom of Israel. It was the capital city. It was the center of religious life and political life. If Jesus was going to lead a political revolution, he would have to go to Jerusalem. And when he did, the expectations of him being an earthly king rose to phenomenal proportions. That happens later in the gospel. But here, Jesus is content to move his, uh, his uh, ministry away from Jerusalem, not just away from Jerusalem, to, but to a region that Matthew identifies as Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, Galilee was a, a region of Israel that had been resettled. Previously, it had, it had been taken away by Assyria in one of the earlier conquests, but Judeans had moved north and begun to resettle the region. Still, unlike Jerusalem and Judea to the south, it was a a region that was full of non-Jewish people or Gentile people. In describing the importance of Jesus locating his base of operation there, Matthew again uses his fulfillment language. 
Thus it fulfilled, he said. Jesus now is landing in the story that is being told throughout the Bible in this way. He is going to Galilee of the Gentiles. Matthew is telling us at the very beginning of the gospel that the mission of Jesus and the kingdom of Jesus is no longer going to be centered on the geographic boundaries of Israel. Jesus is going outward. He has a mission to the peoples, the nations, the Gentiles beyond the Jewish people. He is, of course, Jewish. The early church will be Jewish, but the church will be bigger and it will expand more. There is good news in the gospel for all people. Uh, quoting from the, the prophet in the Old Testament, Matthew says, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them the light has dawned. This reminds us that Jesus is good news for all people. To have concern for the kingdom of heaven, uh, this is synonymous with what Luke would call the kingdom of God, for God's rule and reign on earth is to have a concern for the work of the gospel among all people. The kingdom of God is not synonymous today with any one nation or group of people. It isn't marked on the map by boundaries but it exists where people turn in faith to God and respond to Jesus as their king. Today, the kingdom is found in every nation, on, on, on every geographic place on earth, and the, the seeds of the gospel are growing among all peoples. One day, when Jesus returns, the entirety of the, of the world will be his. The entirety of the map will be the kingdom of God. The glory of God will cover the earth as the waters co cover the sea. One day, all kingdoms will be his. In the book of Revelation, we hear the words pronounced, this great heavenly future prediction, the, the, the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's good news. The kingdom now is here in its spiritual form. It is already present. One day it will cover all the earth. Today it cannot be found on the map, but it's in the hearts of people. One day the map and all the peoples within it uh, will be responding to Jesus as the true king. Second thing that we see as we move through the passage is that people are not naturally part of God's kingdom. When Jesus preaches the closeness of the kingdom, the immediate implication is that we are called to repent, to return, and to reorient ourselves to God in his rule. The message that Jesus brings is not only a message of the kingdom, but a message of repentance. Verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. To repent means to turn. The idea here is that people are not naturally in the kingdom. Instead, we naturally resist God's rule and reign. But Jesus brings the kingdom close. When Jesus is among us, the power of God is near and God is made known. But Jesus comes with a challenge. He challenges people to submit to God's rule. It's true that one day Jesus will be revealed for all people. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess but the Bible warns us that we will do that either as God's enemy or as his friend. The call now is for us to be a people who submit to the kingship of Jesus and who do this by responding in repentance and faith. We turn to God and allow his rule to be directing our lives. This is important for us as we consider the realities of the Christian life. 
Many times when we reduce the Christian life to merely me and Jesus, we minimize the call to repentance. And we begin to think that whatever our own internal feelings are must be what God wants for us. Time and again, uh, Christians famous or otherwise will proclaim that their deep feelings in their life are really the guiding principles rather than God's revealed will. To live in a kingdom is to remember that a kingdom is a place where a king makes rules and people respond to it. They are good rules and they are gracious rules, but they are his rules and not our own. This call to repentance in response to the kingdom reminds us that if we are serious about following Jesus, we will respond to the things he's revealed for us to do, even when they're at odds with our own desires. The third thing we see that continues to expand our view of kingdom is a reminder that the kingdom of God is full of people. We can think of kingdom as a, a, some earthly kingdoms or a place on the map, but more significantly, the kingdom are the people that live there. Jesus, in uh, verses 18 to 22, calls his first disciples, appointing them as human leaders. He shows his authority by calling them out of their otherwise good profession and their otherwise good families to enter into personal relationship with him. In doing so, Jesus is constituting a leadership group for the church. After his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, these apostles, who will be joined by others, will be the foundation of a new people that Jesus is establishing. A particular interest in this passage, though, is that Jesus, in calling these fishermen, gives them a new mission, a mission of finding others and bringing them into the kingdom. They will be no longer fishermen, but fishers of men. You hear the word play. They are calling people, men and women, young and old, to enter into the kingdom through repentance and to be a new people. The kingdom of God reminds us that we are never on our own with God or in our spirituality, but that we are always called into a people. New Testament spirituality, Christian spirituality, is in its essence always corporate. When we are brought into faith, Uh, through baptism and confession of faith we are brought into a people we once were strangers and aliens the apostle Paul Paul tells us but by the grace of Jesus we now come and enter in not only to a new people but to a historic people that goes all the way back to God's earliest promises in the Bible by faith in Jesus we are one in Christ and we are heirs even to the earliest promises given to the patriarch Abraham, Genesis, that's uh, described in Galatians chapter 3. This is an important challenge for us because as people living in an increasingly individualistic society where we're easily isolated from others, we can begin to believe that spirituality is something we do on our own. Of course, we have to do it on our own, but the teaching on the kingdom that's found in the Gospel of Matthew challenges us to look outward and to engage with others, to see our Christian spirituality lived as part of the group, as part of the church, which is, in this sense, the kingdom of God. The fourth thing we see that expands our vision outward is the abundant life that is found in this kingdom. 
Some of the things that mark this early on uh, can sound constrictive. The call to repentance, the call to obedience, the call to leave behind for these apostles a, a former way of life and former relationships can feel at the first constrictive. But in our final picture, in this final paragraph, Jesus shows us a vision of life that is abundant, that's full of joy. For Jesus, the call of the Christian life will often be difficult. And he reminds those who follow them that they too will carry their cross and face opposition. But all that we experience in the Christian life is meant to be part of God's work leading us to the place of abundance. Some now, all of it in fullness when Jesus returns and all things are restored. Look with me on page 8 at the final description. Jesus went through all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the king gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them and great crowds followed him. We see that Jesus is concerned about the totality of the human experience. It's particularly interesting to note that, that Matthew introduces categories that are both spiritual and physical. We wish we knew more about the biblical teaching about demonic influence or spiritual oppression. Uh, there seems to be heightened activity of spiritual warfare around the incarnational ministry of Jesus in his life. And yet the Bible writers take a spiritual reality seriously even as they recognize the full range of actual physical conditions. Some modern people looking back on the Gospels have been tempted to think that any time a Gospel writer wrote about a demonic activity, they simply misunderstood either mental illness or a physical disease like epilepsy. Matthew shows us in this passage that while he doesn't explain every incident or every case, he's able to operate with both categories. Matthew's able to recognize spiritual activity even as he's able to recognize medical conditions like seizures, uh, paralysis, and a variety of illnesses that require physical healing. Jesus is concerned with the fullness of the human experience. When we meditate on the kingdom of God, we recognize that we are called to care for people in spiritual ways, but in ways that impact the fullness of their person. Throughout Christian history, faithful Christians have recognized their call to be involved in a wide range of concerns that impact the good of those around them. They have followed Jesus into ministries of health and healing, concerned with physical care, emotional care, mental care, uh, helping to provide places to live and clothes to wear. Many of the institutions in our own country and throughout the uh, world influenced by Christianity bear the evidence and marks of these concerns. Christians have built hospitals and schools. They've built charitable organizations such as uh, the YMCA, the Red Cross, and Salvation Army. They've expressed their concern for the wholeness of people as they follow Jesus into service in the world. In all of these first four ways, we see the ways in which the, the concept of the kingdom of God challenges us to have a bigger view of the Christian life. A concern that transcends national boundaries and embraces a missionary calling that presses into the whole world. 
a concern that thinks about repenting, returning to God and obeying him even when it's hard, a concern for being part of a people, a concern for the church, Christian spirituality is corporate, and finally a concern that looks to the wholeness of life and the fullness of what people are as we seek to care and love for our neighbors. And perhaps you're here today and you need the challenge of remembering that the kingdom of God is bigger than your own private spirituality. Perhaps the challenge for you is to recognize that God is calling you in your work, in your education, with the actual neighbors around you and the neighborhoods in our city, calling you to be invested and involved in a broad range of concerns, as broad as the kingdom of God and as broad as the ministry of Jesus. Friends, I hope that you would join me in praying and being concerned for those same interests as we think about how we pursue Jesus in the fullness of our life. There is another side to this passage and another challenge we need to hear. Because one of the most obvious parts of this passage, so obvious we can easily miss it, is the concerning reminder that there's really no true kingdom without the king. Sometimes our legitimate concerns for all of the good things we mentioned above can begin to take center stage in such a way that Jesus himself, the Lord of the nations and the Savior of sinners, begins to recede into the background. There's a second challenge that the passage gives us, and that is the challenge that the kingdom is always tightly tied to the king. This is emphasized in many ways in the passage. And let's just glance back over these sections and remember the way in which Matthew ties the kingdom to the king. In the first passage, as Jesus moves into Galilee of the Gentiles, Matthew quotes from the Old Testament saying, To you who sit, to the people dwelling in the darkness, they now have seen a great light. To those dwelling in the shadow of death, on them a light has shined. Why did a light shine on those in Galilee of the Gentiles? The, ample, the answer is as simple as it is obvious once we think about it. It's because Jesus was there. Jesus is a real person. He lived and he breathed, he talked to people. God himself in human flesh really lived among us. And where he went, God was revealed. The light of the gospel shined forth because Jesus was near. We may continue to ask in the, in the second point, when Jesus called them the repentance, why did he say the kingdom of God was at hand? Again, when we begin to consider the, the, the message that Matthew's been telling us throughout, the answer is incredibly simple. The kingdom's at hand because the king has come. That's what Matthew's been telling us for four chapters. He's been reminding us Jesus is the king you've been waiting for. He's the Christ. That means anointed king through whom God will work and act. Repent, for Jesus is near, and the fullness of God is revealed in him. Third, the kingdom centers around the church. As we think of Jesus calling these, uh, these fishermen, do you notice that what he calls them to is not just an abstract set of ideas? He doesn't call them to an institution, but he calls them to himself. One of the things that the text emphasizes through these two series of callings First to two brothers, and then again to other two brothers. The repetition emphasizes the nature of the call. Jesus calls them to himself. Verses 20, uh, 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 
Second time he does it, verse 22, they leave the boat and their father and they followed him, Matthew says. The kingdom is central because it expands our vision of what it means to follow Jesus. That we don't want to have a collapsed Jesus and me spirituality. But the teaching of the kingdom in the gospel of Matthew also reminds us we can never have the kingdom without the king. That all Christianity is at its root actually following Jesus as he was made known in a real person. As I spent time thinking about this over the past week, uh, the Lord burdened my heart to make sure I'm communicating this to you clearly. Maybe you're here today and you're exploring Christianity and you're, you're wondering what this is all about. There are wonderful things that Christians are called to do, a broad scope of concerns. But first and foremost, Christianity is concerned with Jesus the Christ. What we are saying, what we believe, what we are affirming is that God was made known in a person. And where he went, life was abundant. This person gave himself for us. He, he offered himself in our place. He lived the righteous life we should have lived. And giving himself over to death, he paid the penalty for our sin. He was raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of God. And now he rules and reigns with all power and authority. He has poured out his spirit on the church. Where Jesus is, there is life. In our final passage, in this final section we looked at, we saw the, the fullness of life that Jesus offered. As Christians, we seek to live that out as we care for and love our neighbors. But the deepest principle of all is that Jesus gives life. All who came to him were healed, it says. We live in a, a frustrating time of waiting, longing for the return of Jesus. We see a measure of his power poured out now in the spirit. We pray for healing and we use all of our gifts and resources to care for others. But there will be a day when Jesus will return in person and all things will be made new. There is a power now present in the church that is directly related to the person of Jesus. We believe that as we gather in his name, as we lift him up in praise, as we gather in God's people and pronounce the Lord is, the kingdom of God is, hand, is at hand, we believe that Jesus is present by the power of his Holy Spirit. Friends, are you here today longing for power to change? Are, are you desiring deeply to see the strength to live differently? Jesus has power to heal. Jesus is real. He's living. He can be known. And the power of his spirit is present to all that call on him in faith. The, the message of the kingdom broadens our view. We must make sure we never try to have the kingdom without the king. Let me close with a, a brief reminder uh, and perhaps for some of us a warning. We see in this passage a robust set of concerns, a set of concerns for how we love others in the world, of how we seek purposes and plans consistent with God's kingdom. The temptation for Christians and for the church down through the ages is that any time one of these great plans emerges, one of these uh, the big broad scope of the kingdom of heaven appears, we can begin to lose sight of the centrality of Jesus, our King. 
Let me share two reminders as we close, historic reminders that I think can influence our approach to this today. At the time when America was rebelling against our king, uh, American leaders were reforming and reconstituting a country. They formed a republic and not a monarchy. Uh, Many people at this time were deeply influenced by Christianity, but many were also influenced by growing waves of modern skepticism and deism. Some of our founding fathers were Christians and some were not. But the spirit of that age was a spirit deeply concerned about personal change and personal growth. Whether you would look at someone like uh, Benjamin Franklin, uh, who made a long list of things that he ought to do, or any number of other characters, the spirit of that age was a spirit of personal renewal and restoration. And yet, for many Americans at this time in our history, they approached this aspect of the kingdom, personal change, without the king. When you try to change personally, disconnected from Jesus, you lose power. You no longer have good news. You simply have a set of rules and a personal uh, effort to try to be different. The good news of the gospel is, yes, God's concerned about personal change. He's concerned that you be better. But the kingship of Jesus is always central. The good news of the gospel is personal change comes from connection to Jesus. Sometime later in American history, the mood of the culture shifted and changed rapidly. In the early part of the 20th century, emphasis on personal change in that way receded to the background and emphasis on cultural change and transformation became central. Christian modernists in the beginning of the 20th century were concerned for the kingdom of God in many forms. They sought, in many cases, appropriately good uh, goals and methods of transformation of society as they sought to bring the rule and reign of God into unjust practices. Many of these uh, things we could applaud, and yet often the spirit of that age was just uh, as easily able to forget the kingship of Jesus. Modernist Christians at the beginning of the last century affirmed the goodness of God's kingdom, but they denied the power of Jesus to bring it. They sold out on truth about the person of Jesus, his real life, and the importance of his resurrection. In a very different form, they offered a kingdom without a king. They offered a good set of things to do, a concern for a better and more just society, but they abandoned the centrality of Jesus as king. Friends, my guess is today you're tempted by some form of either of these impulses. Tempted to pursue your best possible life, maybe in discipline or in fullness of growth, but to do it independent of the good news of the gospel. Or, Or perhaps you've seen visions appropriately concerned with injustice in the world around us and you dream and long and desire for a better place. It's an appropriate uh, Christian concern, but easily we are tempted to embrace models and visions that are overlapping God's kingdom, but not overlapping with Jesus as king. Without the power of Jesus as king, we don't have good news. We have an elaborate set of human works that will grind you to the dust the more seriously you take it. And so let me urge you today to not let hold of your pursuit to be a better person, if that's what you'd 
can identify with. Let me urge you today not to let hold of a concern that we would live in a better and more just society. But let me urge you today that the kingdom of God in its real form always comes with the king. In our submission to him, in the power that he brings, the real risen Lord Jesus Christ, we have good news. A king who is active and present, who is powerfully working in the world far beyond what we could do on our own. Let's close in prayer.